Thank you, special music people. <laughs> Actually, it fits uh, well with the, uh, the message this morning. Um, let's turn in our Bibles to Luke chapter 3. I'm hoping to ask some honest questions and have some honest answers this morning. Do you, you don't have to shake your head up and down or yes or anything else, but we just sang, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Ever feel that way? Prone to wander. Sometimes we do. Well, we're going to take a look at uh, a number of passages this morning, and um, I hope you will be able to track with me as we go through this. Uh, But we're going to start in Luke chapter 3 and beginning with verse 1. Now, in the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate being governor of Judea, Herod being tetrarch of Galilee, his brother Philip tetrarch of Ituria and the region of Trachonitis, and Lysanias tetrarch of Abilene, while Annas and Caiaphas were high priests, the word of God came to John, the son of Zacharias, in the wilderness. And he went into all the region around the Jordan, preaching a baptism of repentance for the remission of sins. As it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, saying, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. Every valley shall be filled, and every mountain and hill brought low. The crooked places shall be made straight, and the rough ways smooth, and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. Then he said to the multitudes that came out to be baptized by him, Brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Therefore bear fruits worthy of repentance, and do not begin to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I say to you that God is able to raise up children to Abraham from these stones. And even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Therefore, every tree which does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. So the people asked him, saying, What shall we do then? He answered and said to them, He who has two tunics, let him give to him who has none. And he who has food, let him do likewise. Then tax collectors also came to be baptized, and he said to them, and said to him, Teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, Collect no more than what is appointed for you. Likewise, the soldiers asked him, saying, And what shall we do? So he said to them, Do not intimidate anyone or accuse falsely, and be content with your wages. The year was 1971. I was 13 years old. And um, I was living in Vancouver, British Columbia, Canada. And I emphasize that on purpose. We were told that the Queen of England was coming to town. And she was going to visit the city. And the, the, the entire city was thrown into overdrive as they prepared for the coming of the Queen, Queen Elizabeth. She's still in power. Buildings were washed. I can remember some old gray buildings that looked quite nice before she came. Sidewalks were repaired. All the potholes were filled on the roads, and they were repaved. In the rut of her motorcade, uh, 
was carefully mapped out so that as she came into the city from the airport, she would bypass all the slums and she would go past all of the upscale uh, homes and uh, the nicer roads and nicer uh, communities. <coughs> Flags were hoisted high. All of the children, this is the important part to me at the time, all of the children were let out of school <laughs> and we lined the streets waiting for the coming of the queen. The whole city was to be prepared and ready because the queen was coming. Brothers and sisters, we are about to be visited by someone of nobler veins than Queen Elizabeth of Britain. There is one coming who is the King of kings and the Lord of lords, at whose name every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess that he is Lord to the glory of God the Father. The King is coming. The question is, are you prepared to meet the king? In the Gospel of Luke, uh, we have already been introduced to a man named John. John was born to Zacharias and Elizabeth, and he was set apart for God's service. Uh, he was set apart for, for God uh, from his mother's womb. In fact, it says in Luke chapter 1, verse 15, For he will be great in the sight of the Lord. And shall neither drink wine or strong drink. He will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to their, to the Lord their God. He will also go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. Just as there were preparations in the city of Vancouver for the arrival of the queen, so John was to prepare the hearts of people for the coming of the Lord. It says every mountain was to be brought low, every valley was to be filled, so that the path would be smooth for the coming of the king. Now in Vancouver, that literally meant filling the potholes so that the roads were smooth. And um, John... With, uh, with regard to John, it had to do with calling the people to the Lord himself, calling the people of Israel back to the Lord. And his message was, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. In other words, get ready. The king is coming. You say, well, why weren't they ready? They were God's people. They had the word of the Lord. They had the scriptures. They had the priesthood. Why weren't they ready? Why was John's message or why was John's ministry even necessary? The, the people knew the king was coming. The prophets had told them, but they were unprepared. And by their lives, by the way they lived their lives, they really showed how irrelevant it was that he was coming at all. I think we could ask ourselves the question as well. Are we ready for the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. Really, are we ready? Michael led us in worship this morning with the theme of the preciousness of the Lord Jesus Christ. He is precious to us. For those of us who are saved, we have had our sins forgiven. And He is precious to us. But really the question is, how do we show that He is precious to us? How do we show that he really means anything to us at all. 
Who is the center of our affection? Who sits in the throne of my heart? If it's not the Lord, then perhaps we need a healthy dose of repentance ourselves. Several thousand years ago, King Solomon, um, great king of Israel, built a temple for the Lord. And at its dedication, he prayed for the nation of Israel. I like the prayer uh, because he's very honest in his prayer. (laughs) And he looks at the people and he looks at the condition of their heart that day. But he looks forward into the future and he says to the Lord, you know, I think he, he really realizes that the nation, like all of us, are sinners. And that he could have sung that song this morning too, prone to wander. Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. And as he thought through in his prayer the future of Israel, that the natural tendency is to act like sheep wandering from the shepherd and overseer of our soul. And Solomon asked the Lord that if the nation ultimately turned from the Lord and the Lord took them into captivity as a, a judgment upon them because of their sins, and if they were in a far country and there they turned to the Lord and repented of their sins, would he hear them? Would he forgive their sins? And this is what the Lord said to Solomon. If my people, Second Chronicles 7.14, If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven. I will forgive their sin and heal their land. And what happened? Israel did wander from the Lord. They did sin over and over again. And the Lord sent prophets into their midst over and over again to call them back to the Lord. Brothers and sisters, every time we come to the Word of God and we see ourselves in the Word, and the Lord points out some sin in our life or some area where we've wandered from the Lord, it's as if the prophets of the Lord have come and said, come back to the Lord. Come back. And that's what the what Isaiah and Jeremiah pled with the people to repent of their sins, to return to the Lord. You see, God wants to be the love of your life. He really does. If He is precious to us, He wants to be the love of your life. He wants to take uh, first place and really only place in your heart. The prophets warned them that if they continued to reject the Lord and reject the word of the Lord and turn from Him, that He would have no alternative but to judge them. And He did. Days and weeks turned into centuries. And finally, the nation was taken into captivity. But even there, God did not forget His people. And He sent two more prophets, Ezekiel and Daniel, to call the people back to the Lord. The judgment lasted 70 years until some of the people began to repent. And they turned to the Lord. And the Lord raised up Ezra and raised up Nehemiah to return to the land. And he said, Arise and build. For a while, the repentance lasted. For a while, 
their hearts were true to the Lord. They did go back. They did begin to rebuild. They, they did go back to um, return to the land. But just like me, just like you, sin began to creep in again. And we see in their wandering hearts really a reflection of our own. That's why we see in the New Testament that these things were written for our instruction. Why? Because we're just like them. That's why. We're just like them. What they did, we would have done. As we sang this morning, Let thy goodness, like a fetter, bind my wandering heart to thee. Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Here's my heart. Oh, take and seal it. Seal it for thy courts above. Every day, something or someone clamors for our affection, the affection of our heart. And often we do open our hearts to love the world and the things that are in the world. And sometimes we open our heart to let ourselves be seated in the throne of our heart. But God says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength. The New Testament pictures the Lord standing outside his church in the days of the Laodicean church, knocking on the heart's door. Not just for the church to open, but anyone in the church. I mean, it's become that desperate. Anyone. And if anyone hears and opens, I will come in, he said. John's message was a message of repentance. Very uncomfortable. Nobody likes to hear um, words like that. Repent of your sins. That means I'm doing something wrong. My heart's not right with God. And I need to turn back to the Lord. It's a hard message. It's a difficult message. But he preached it faithfully. And the clarion call for repentance rings throughout the Old Testament. In fact, even during Nehemiah's time, when the people had, had come out of uh, bondage, had, had come out of um, captivity, and they had gone back to serve the Lord and to please the Lord and to honor the Lord and to love the Lord and to rebuild, even then their hearts were turning. During Nehemiah's time, a, a time of revival, a time of a great building program. God wasn't so concerned with the bricks and mortar. He was concerned with the hearts of his people. Even in a time of a building program that we have, God isn't so concerned with the sticks and the cement and all of that. He's concerned with our hearts. Nehemiah had to rebuke some of the people for, many, for a number of reasons. And we're going to talk about this um, this morning. During this time of repentance, they needed to repent because they were taking advantage of the poor. They were charging interest on loans, forcing their own brothers and sisters into bankruptcy, causing them to lose their houses, to lose their land and their crops. And he called them to repentance. The wonderful thing is they did. They repented. So his message was not uh, in vain. 
As time went on, the people began again to show their neglect for the Lord by not giving of their tithes and their offerings. As a result, there was no money for the Levites to serve uh, the Lord. And they and the work of the Lord was being hindered. The Levites had to go out into the fields to work in secular employment. And the work of God was neglected. And ultimately, one of the prophets we'll look at in just a minute, accused them of robbing God by doing this. Nehemiah also called them to repent because they were breaking the Sabbath and because they were intermarrying with unbelievers. And during this time, God raised up three more prophets. So now you've come back from captivity. You're back in the land. Three more prophets come along, the last one being Malachi. And so I want to this morning, and you'll see how it's related probably in a few minutes, but I want you this morning to turn with me to the prophet Malachi, last book of the Old Testament. The Old Testament ends with the message of the prophet Malachi. And it is into this um, lukewarm condition, this lukewarm attitude about spiritual truths that Malachi comes and delivers his message. It's the final Old Testament message. And after he delivers his message, God is silent. He stops talking. And 400 years go by and God does not say another word. What is the message that Malachi brings that is so important that God wants them to think about it for 400 years? Malachi's message is that God wants his people to examine themselves and to repent of their sins because there is judgment that is coming. He is coming to judge the world. And he wants a people who are prepared to meet their king. In Malachi, we read that he will come. Suddenly, he will come to his temple. And he says this message. He delivers this message to the people. And then he's silent. Did the people prepare for his coming? Over that 400 years, as they were waiting for the coming of the king? Some did. Obviously, they did. Because we have people in the New Testament we've already read about in Luke. We have uh, Zechariah. And Elizabeth, we have Mary and Joseph, we have uh, Simeon and Anna, but they're the exception. They're not the rule. Most of the nation was unprepared for the coming of the king. It's interesting, as I was reading through Malachi over the last few weeks, it reminds me of a section in the New Testament. It reminds me of that, of those chapters in Revelation where the Lord Jesus Christ is walking among his churches. And he is looking at the conditions of the church. He, he applauds them for the things that they do right. He rebukes them for the things where they are lacking. And he calls them once again to what? To repentance. To turn. To turn back to him. In the end, as I mentioned earlier, he pleads with the Laodicean church. The church that probably depicts the day in which we live more than any other Uh, church. And he says in Revelation 3, I know your works, that you are neither cold nor hot. I could wish you were cold or hot. So then, because you are lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, 
I will vomit you out of my mouth. Because you say, I am rich, have become wealthy, and have need of nothing. And do not know that you are wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire, that you may be rich, and white garments that you may be clothed, that the shame of your nakedness may not be revealed, and anoint your eyes with eyesol that you may see. As many as I love, he says, I rebuke and chasten. Therefore be zealous and repent. Malachi called the Jews to repent. John the Baptist called the nation to repent. And in Revelation, we hear Jesus calling his church to repent, to turn back to him. All three address a people who profess to know God, but who are not living for him. A people who say they are God's people, but they're simply going through the motions. A people who claim to know God, but who are blind to their spiritual condition before them, before him. They've grown cold. They've grown lethargic. And their spiritual eyes have grown dim. Brothers and sisters, the king is coming. Are we ready for the coming of the king? The coming of the Lord. So, Malachi chapter 1, verse 1. The burden of the word of the Lord to Israel by Malachi. Again, look how he starts. I have loved you. That's what the Lord said in Revelation too, wasn't it? Uh, He said, as many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. I have loved you, says the Lord. Yet you say, in what way have you loved us? His answer is, was not Esau Jacob's brother, says the Lord? Yet Jacob I have loved, but Esau I have hated. It's a very sad thing when a person's spiritual life has deteriorated, I can't even say it, has uh, (laughs) deteriorated, it's really bad, when their life is so bad that um, they begin to question the love of God. Do you question the love of God in your life? You remember the disciples? Lord, don't you care? That was questioning the love of God. Don't you care? Things happen in your life, Lord. You don't care anymore, do you? We sulk and we pout and we cry and we whine. Don't you care? That's what they were saying here in Malachi. In what way have you loved us? What have you done for me lately, Lord? God says, the very fact that I chose you and your father, Jacob, over Esau should be proof enough. The curses that came upon Esau looked like hatred in comparison to the blessings that came upon Israel. The fact that God chose us, saved us, is evidence enough that he loves us. Brothers and sisters, we need a healthy glimpse of the cross where God demonstrated his love towards us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. The hymn writer said, Lest I forget Gethsemane, lest I forget thine agony, lest I forget thy love for me, lead me to Calvary. We need a healthy dose of Calvary every day. 
every morning. We should think about what the Lord has done for us. His love is without question. When we consider all that the Lord has done for us and all the promises He has made for us and that are in store for us, how can we doubt His love? Malachi 1.6, He reminds them of His relationship with them as a father. He said, A son honors his father. That's normal. A servant his master. If then I am the father... Where is my honor? If I am a master, where is my reverence, says the Lord of hosts? To you priests who despise my name, yet you say, in what way have we despised your name? You offer defiled food on my altar, but you say, in what way have we defiled you? By saying the table of the Lord is contemptible. And when you offer the blind as a sacrifice, is it not evil? And when you offer the lame and the sick, is it not evil? Offer it then to your governor. Would he be pleased with you? Would he accept you favorably, says the Lord of hosts? But now entreat God's favor, that he may be gracious to us. While this is being done by your hands, will he accept you favorably, says the Lord of hosts? Who is there even among you who would shut the doors, so that you would not kindle fire on my altar in vain? I have no pleasure in you, says the Lord of hosts, nor will I accept an offering from your hands. For from the rising of the sun, even to its going down, my name shall be great among the Gentiles. In every place, incense shall be offered to my name and a pure offering for my name shall be great among the nations, says the Lord of hosts. But you profane it and that you say the table of the Lord is defiled and its fruit, its food is contemptible. And you also say, oh, what a weariness. And you sneer at it, says the Lord of hosts. And you bring the stolen, the lame, and the sick. Thus you bring an offering. Should I accept this from your hand, says the Lord? But cursed be the deceiver who has in his flock a male and takes a vow but sacrifices to the Lord what is blemished. For I am a great king, says the Lord of hosts, and my name is to be feared among the nations." Now, before we point the finger at the Jews, the nation of Israel, remember that I've got fingers pointing back at me. Remember. Do we have this attitude at times, though? Lord, what have you done for me lately? Yeah, I know you went to the cross. I know you died on the cross for my sins. But what have you done for me lately? Do you come to the Lord's Supper and think of a million reasons why you really don't want to be there? Why you'd really rather be somewhere else? Have you stopped coming altogether? Do you come and not participate because you're upset with the Lord? Life isn't going the way you expected. Do you have the same attitude of the Jews of Malachi's time? Oh, what a weariness it is. Do you withhold from giving to the Lord because you're having a temper tantrum? Well, the Lord didn't help me this week, so why should I help him? As if he needs your money. When the bag comes around, are you giving generously, cheerfully, and with purpose? Do you prepare to give to the Lord in the same way you prepare your taxes? Honestly. Here, Lord. That's all I got right now. Just take it. Try doing that to your governor. Try doing that to the IRS. See how far you get. 
throwing him in your spare change. See if the IRS will accept you. Second Corinthians chapter nine, verse seven says this. So let each one give as he purposes in his heart, not grudgingly or of necessity. For God loves a cheerful giver. Why does God love a cheerful giver? Because that's the way he gave his son to us. Let us not be ashamed at his coming. In chapter 2 of Malachi, the Lord rebukes the leaders, the Levites, because they have falsely accused God of being unjust. Yet they were the ones who were being unfaithful. God's purpose was to have men who fear him and are reverent before his name, turning sinners from their iniquities. But instead, they were causing people to stumble and profaning God's holy institution. And even when they came with sacrifices with tears, God would not accept it. Why? Why wouldn't they accept it? Well, that's exactly what they asked. Chapter 2, verse 14. Yet you say, for what reason? Why aren't you accepting our sacrifices? Because the Lord has been witness between you and the wife of your youth, with whom you have dealt treacherously. Yet she is your companion and your wife by covenant. But did he not make them one, having a remnant of the Spirit? And why one? He seeks godly offspring. Therefore, take heed to your spirit and let none deal treacherously with the wife of his youth. For the Lord God of Israel says that he hates divorce. For if one, co- if, for it covers one's garment with violence, says the Lord of hosts. Therefore, take heed to your spirit that you do not deal treacherously. You have wearied the Lord with your words. Yet you say, in what way have we wearied him? And that you say, everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord, and he delights in them. Or where is the God of justice? When a man and a woman come together um, in marriage, they stand before a congregation of their friends and their family, and ultimately they stand in the presence of God. And they make a commitment one to another. They are making a vow, and they are promising to love and to cherish one another for life. I remember saying, I, Don, take you, Krista, to be my lawfully wedded wife, to have and to hold from this day forward, for better, for worse, we like the better part, for better, for worse, for richer, for poorer, in sickness, and in health, to love and to cherish till death do us part. Did you say something like that when you were married? I made that pledge before hundreds of witnesses. I made that pledge in the sight of God, and I meant what I said. I hope you do too. The Lord expects me to keep my promise, not out of drudgery, not of, what did I do, okay? But out of love for my wife and her out of love for me. Men, you made a covenant with your wife. Do not deal treacherously with her. 
Do not be unfaithful to her. Do not treat her with contempt, but love her and cherish her as you do your own body. You would not do the things to your own body that some might do to their own wives. Husbands, love your wives and do not be bitter toward them. Husbands, love your wives, even as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it. That's what we're called to do. Women, you made a covenant with your husband. Wives, Paul says, submit to your own husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Now, wives, let me just say something to you in case I know you already know this. But it may help you to remember that your husband is a sinner just like you. Okay? You know the part that he's a sinner. I know that. But he's a sinner just like you. Be patient. My sister-in-law, I don't quote her very often, <laughs> said, before I got married, I thought my husband was an angel. And after we got married, I realized he was an angel, a fallen angel. <laughs> Women, I doubt your husbands are fallen angels, but I can tell you with absolute certainty, I know he's a sinner. Do you want a good verse to put over your bed? Let me suggest this one. It's not a verse that I've ever seen on any plaque. Let all bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, and evil speaking be put away from you with all malice. And be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, just as God forgave you. Another one right under it. You can only see this one in the daylight. It says this. Do not let the sun go down on your wrath. For the sake of your marriage and for purity, I'll be very blunt, do not use the sexual relation as a weapon or as a, as a bargaining chip in your marriage. Never. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 3 says this, Let the husband render to his wife the affection due her, and likewise also the wife to her husband. The wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. And likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Do not deprive one another except with consent for a time that you may give yourselves to fasting and prayer and come again so that Satan does not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Brothers and sisters, do not destroy your marriage by selfish and sinful behavior. Love one another, for the king is coming. Malachi addressed these issues with the, um, the people of his time as well. Malachi chapter 3, and this is how it relates to our passage in Luke. You thought I was never going to get there. In Malachi chapter 3, verse 1, it says this, Behold, I send my messenger, 
and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, even the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. 400 years before John the Baptist thundered into town from the wilderness, wearing a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey. The Lord promised to send him here in the book of Malachi. The Lord calls him my messenger. That's who he's referring to here uh, in the first phrase. Behold, I send my messenger. And his job was to prepare the way before me, he says. The Lord says. Now, this is another aside here, but this is a tremendous verse on the deity of the Lord Jesus Christ. Because here in this verse, it's very clear that Malachi is talking about the Lord. It says, the Lord of hosts. But we know from the New Testament that this is clearly referring to the Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, Jesus is God. We don't have time to read and explain all of the rest of the book of Malachi, but Malachi chapter 3 refers to a partial fulfillment in John the Baptist, the messenger. But there is a later fulfillment um, will come to prepare the way for the Lord before his second coming of the Lord. So the Lord, in fact, in in verse 3, Behold, I send my messenger. He will prepare the way before me. The Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, even the messenger of the covenant, in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. Then verse 2 says, but who can endure the day of his coming? Now, that refers to his second coming, his future coming, yet to come. The king is coming. And when he comes that time, when he comes the second time, he is not coming for salvation. He is coming for judgment. In verse 5, it says, and I will come near you for judgment, and I will be swift witness against sorcerers. Sorcerers, actually, there's a very close association with sorcery and drug abuse or sorcery and substance abuse. You are really opening yourself up to, um, to, to demonism, to the whole realm of the occult and everything else like that. And the Lord is against it very clearly here. And it says that, that he is against um, sorcery, against adulterers, against perjurers, against those who exploit wage earners and widows and orphans and against those who turn away an alien because they do not fear me, says the Lord of hosts. For I am the Lord. I do not change. The Lord calls his people in Malachi's time to repentance. In John's day, he calls the people to repentance. And he calls the church, to repentance today. They asked, how shall we return? The question is echoed by the people who asked John the Baptist, what shall we do then? Well, in, in Malachi's day, the Lord gave them an answer. And this is what he said. Will a man rob God? Who would rob God? Yet you have robbed me. But you say, in what way have we robbed you? Verse, uh, this is verse 8, chapter 3. In tithes and offerings. You are cursed with a curse, for you have robbed me, even this whole nation. Bring all the tithes into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house. And try me now in this, says the Lord of hosts, if I will not open for you the windows of heaven and pour out for you such blessing that there will will not be room enough to receive it. 
and I will rebuke the devourer for your sakes, so that he will not destroy the fruit of your ground, nor shall the vine fail to bear fruit for you in the field, says the Lord of hosts. You know, there's a principle in giving. In the Old Testament, of course, they were required to give. There was a certain percentage that the Jews were required to bring and to give to the Lord. That's not true in the New Testament. There's no requirement that way. But there still is a principle in the Scripture that applies, and that principle is this, that when you give, you don't have less. Okay? Now, I know that doesn't make any sense financially. There is no accounting book I have ever seen that says that. There's no accounting course I have ever taken or ever heard of that would suggest such a thing. But this is God's way of accounting. Okay? And it makes sense when you think about it. If I have a seed and, or seeds and I scatter those seeds, I don't have those seeds anymore, do I? But God has a funny way of taking seeds and making more out of less. I don't know how he does it, but he does. And it's true of money as well. It's true of possessions as well. If, as we give to the Lord, we're not really losing. We're gaining. And he has a remarkable way of taking things that we've given away and not just giving back to us. And sometimes we think, oh, well, if I give to the Lord 100 in fact, there's preaching like this. Give $100, the Lord is going to give you $10,000 back, cash. Well, it's not what the Bible says. But the Lord has remarkable ways of taking expenses in your home and changing them in all kinds of funny and crazy ways and giving back to you in things that you didn't have to spend it on. That appliance that didn't break down, that car that still keeps running, that medical expense that you didn't face, that accident that you didn't get into, all kinds of ways that God has ways of giving back to you. It's not um, when you give, you don't have less. The Lord gives more. Proverbs says this too. It says, there is one who scatters yet increases more. And there is one who withholds more than is right, but it leads to poverty. Weird, isn't it? But that's God's way of accounting. It's all backwards. No, we're backwards. <laughs> His way is right. Some of you are newly employed. Some of you are recently re-employed. Some of you are handling your own money for the first time in life. And I want you just to say this to you as, as young people in particular. Learn this lesson early. Learn this lesson early. Give generously to the Lord and to His work. Give first to Him. Seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness. And all the things that you need will be added to you. Give to the Lord the first and the best and you'll find that He will trust you with more. Withhold from the Lord and you're going to find that even what you have vanishes away. Isn't there another proverb that talks about the wings of money that fly away? Yeah, it's You can sit there and you can look at the stock market all you want. You can pour it all into the stock market if you want. I don't recommend it at all. Never have. Never will. Okay. Give to the Lord. Remember something too. What you have is not your own. It doesn't belong to you. God gave it to you in the first place. 
It's his. Give back to the Lord first and foremost. Remember, it's God who gave you the job. It's God who gave you the income. It's God who gives you the inheritance. It's God who gives you the windfall. It's God who gives you everything you have. And it all belongs to him. Don't withhold from the Lord what he's given to you. The only class on accounting that I see in the scripture is opposite of anything I've ever seen in the world. And then the Lord wants us not to just give, but he wants us to do it cheerfully, willingly. Hilariously, actually, is what the, what the word means. God teaches us to do this, and then when we do it, he rewards us for having done it. It's amazing, really. Malachi rebuked them for withholding. And the Lord, holding out that promise to them again, listen, repent, give back to the Lord what he's given to you. Repent. And when they did, he said, God says, I will bless you so that you can't even contain the blessing. Okay? That's what the Lord is wanting to do. And we hinder, in a sense, the Lord's delight, what he wants to do for us. 400 years passed. And finally, John the Baptist appears on the scene, preaching repentance toward God. Listen, John the Baptist was saying, you've sinned long enough. Turn back to the Lord. Return to the Lord. Turn from your sins. That's what repentance is. You're going the wrong way. Repent. Go the right way. That's really what it means. It can't be any simpler than that. Stop doing what's wrong. Return to the Lord. Return to the right way. Turn your hearts to the Lord. By being baptized, the people were acknowledging their sin before God and were making a public declaration that they were ready to pledge allegiance to the king who was coming. But repentance assumes a change of behavior as well. It's not just a change of thinking. It's a change of behavior as well. In John the Baptist's day, when they asked, what shall we do then? He answered and said to them, he who has two tunics, let him give to him who has none. And he who has food, let him do likewise. Kind of revolutionary, don't you think? We read and go, oh yeah, I've read that before. That's very revolutionary. Then the tax collectors also came to be baptized and said, Teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, Collect no more than what is appointed for you. Quit ripping people off. Likewise, the soldiers asked him, saying, What shall we do? Do not intimidate anyone or accuse falsely. A person in that kind of position has power that's been given to them. Don't intimidate people or accuse falsely. And this one's for America. Be content with your wages. Be content with your wages. And to the church of Laodicea, Jesus says, as many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. Therefore, be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone, anyone, hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and dine with him and he with me. The fact that the Lord loves you is without question. The Lord has done everything necessary for you to have fellowship with him. Today, he stands at the heart of your door, not for salvation, 
But He wants your heart. He wants all of you. He wants everything. He wants that intimacy with you. Don't shut Him out of your life. Let's pray. Lord, as we come before you this morning, we are chastened. We are rebuked by you. We realize, Lord, how prone to wander we are. Lord, sometimes we get so caught up in our own lives, in our own little world, that uh, we forget you. And we put you aside and think we can live our lives on our own. Lord, that's a mistake. It's sin. We ask you, Lord, to forgive us, to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Lord, we want to love you with all of our heart, all of our soul, all of our being. Lord, we pray that you would point out to us, because you love us, the areas in our own lives where we have gone astray, where we have become cold or callous in our relationship with you. Lord, give us tender hearts full of love, full of affection for you. Lord, keep us from wandering as a good shepherd does. We pray in Jesus' name.